The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. You're listening to an encore presentation of Pilgrim's Progress. We will not be taking calls today. Welcome to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenley, pastor of the National Prayer Chapel. Holiness, in the Greek, is hagiodzo. It means literally, to make holy. This word has a future tense, but nowhere in the Greek New Testament is the future tense used to talk about holiness. It simply does not occur. Man fell into sin on earth. The atoning provision was made on earth, and man's recovery, man's being made holy, is on this earth. Now again, Hagiadzo has a future tense construction, but it's not used in the New Testament for very obvious reasons. There is no time after our time on the earth in which to be made holy. There is no place after this place we are in right now on earth to be made holy. There is no life after this life in which to be made holy. Accordingly, to be made holy cannot be a mere setting apart or a positional declaration because it is exclusively used in the New Testament of making a new creature here and now. Holiness is not something eschatological. It is not something that's going to happen in the future. It is a present experience. And I come to this radio broadcast day after day calling you to a life of brokenness, a life of humility, a life of righteousness, a life of obedience to Jesus, a life of separation from this world and the things of this world. I call you to be made holy now while there is yet time to be made holy. Now, as I shared with you yesterday, it is vitally important, and particularly because of some things I will share with you today. It is vitally important that you understand in your heart that now is the only time you can be made holy. Today is the day of salvation. And you cannot use your experience to justify your sin. Some of you have said to me, Pastor, I've tried as hard as I can, and I just can't leave my sin. 
I can't gain the victory, but I'm saved. I'm on my way to heaven, but I'm, I'm walking in sin. You hold that position. Try to understand what I'm saying. You hold that position as a false sentiment that tries to say that I look at my experience for what is normal. And the normal for me is that I continue to walk in sin, so Jesus is going to have to adjust his reality to match my reality. I want to tell you no. The scriptures are what we must look upon as reality. The description the scriptures give regarding the life of a person and the way they should walk before God in present holiness must be the standard. And if my life does not measure up to what the scriptures teach, then I must recognize that and enter into deep repentance until my life, by the power of the blood of Jesus, is brought into full alignment with the teachings of the Scriptures. As I've shared with you before, some of the great teachers will tell on occasion how they came to their sinning Christian position. Charles Stanley, sharing this in both his book and in audio form on the radio, has said on a number of occasions that he was raised in a holiness church, but because he could not overcome his sin, he had to look for a gospel that would cover his sin because he became convinced that he could never be made righteous, not until he dies. That format brings a falseness into the gospel of Jesus Christ that causes the church today to be scorned. The pagans don't see any difference between themselves and the Christian, except the Christian is self-righteous and says, I'm forgiven and you're not because I've accepted Jesus and you haven't. What utter foolishness. Our experience is not the judge of what is right. The scriptures are the basis of our authority. Now I'd like to take you to some of the scriptures today. You remember yesterday we spoke about the story of John Bunyan with his wonderful allegory, Pilgrim's Progress. And you noted with me that when he came to the narrow gate, he was granted entrance after he had waited and knocked, and then he was jerked in, but the, the pack was still left on his back. He still was conscious of his sin. It was not removed. He had to run down the path, and he came to the house of the interpreter, and the Holy Spirit began to teach him about righteousness. That's what I'm doing for you right now. That's what this radio broadcast has at the very base, a teaching about how you can walk 
righteous before God about the lessons that you must grasp if you are going to understand what is transpiring in your life. One young man, speaking of another much more mature Christian man, said, I'll never believe that what he's saying is true. He's never praising God. He's never worshiping. He's always in pain and anguish in his soul. Things are always hard for him. I don't want to walk down that path. Well, this young man in his immaturity doesn't understand that the praise and the worship is interspersed with the tears and the agony. Because this is a narrow path, and it's a narrow gate. And some of you have been under the illusion that you could waltz in and say, Oh, I love Jesus. I accept him as my Lord and Savior. And then you were going to have a cakewalk. Just obeying the word of the Lord as it comes to you. And you're good and you're on your way and everything's wonderful. It's not that way. I've been a pastor now for well over 40 years. I didn't just get off the boat. I've been around this bush quite a few times. I've made many, 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 many mistakes. I have sinned against God with pride and arrogance. I have been full of myself. But that's the condition of all of us. And then the discipline of God comes and he slowly he breaks us. He changes us. He transforms us. He makes us into new creatures. Talk with Father Abraham. He leaves his country. He goes to a, a land he doesn't know about. When he gets there, there's famine in the land. And what's he do? He heads for Egypt. He wasn't told to go to Egypt. He was told to go to Cana land and wait there on God. But instead of waiting there on God, he heads out for Egypt because that's where the food is. That's where his possibilities are. When he gets to Egypt, he tells his wife to lie and say that she is his sister and not his wife. Pharaoh catches on after disease strikes he and all of his household. The women can't give birth to children. They're barren. Finally, he confronts Abraham and kicks him out of the land. He sent packing. How many times has God had to kick me out of somewhere? So he's kicked out of, out of Egypt and he goes back and I mean, I could go the story. The covenant being made, the dramatic covenant that God made as he walked through the blood of the animals, simply saying, if I don't keep my covenant to you, Abraham, I'll be cut in half. I will have broken the covenant, and I'll have to die. Of course, Jesus was not going to break his covenant. He was going to die, but not for his breaking the covenant. He was going to die for our breaking the covenant. And what's Abraham do? 
As soon as that episode is over, he has every promise of God. What's he do? He tries to have a son of the promise through Hagar, the Egyptian. By his own flesh, he'll fulfill the word of God. And if you're a pastor or a spiritual leader in your church, you'll understand how many times all of us have tried in our flesh to build the kingdom of God, and it was utterly useless. And finally, after Abraham has a son of promise, Isaac is given to him. Everything is coming up roses. we find that Abraham and his wife are not living together. They're separated. Why? I, the scriptures don't tell us. I believe it was because she was so angry that Abraham took her son, Isaac, to offer him as a burnt offering. I think she was so angry and so broken by this that she left Abraham. Now, I don't know that that's so, but the scriptures indicate when she died, they were far apart from one another. You think it was easy for Abraham to go and offer his son Isaac on that altar? You think he did not spend hours of agony deciding once and for all would he trust God and praise God according to Hebrews 11? There rose up in Abraham's heart a spirit that says, This is my son. It is the son of promise, and God has given him to me, and I'm going to offer him as a burnt offering on the altar because God said to, and then God is going to have to resurrect him because God always keeps his word. What a wonderful position. Do you think he got to that position by trapezing through the land full of victory and joy and gladness and worship? Are you kidding me? He came to that position through much, much suffering and discipline. And then it was finally that God spoke and said, Okay, you have finally proven to me, Abraham, that I can trust you. Now this is what I'm going to do. Because you trusted me, because you obeyed me, because you believed me, this is what I'll do for you. And then everything was fulfilled. There is no path but the narrow path of suffering that will grow a man or a woman into the mature person that God desires. That's not good news. But it is reality. Now, when we come to the Scriptures, I want to read for you just a portion from the book of John. You all know this story, but let's look a little deeper. John, the third chapter, verse 1. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, 
Jesus did not enter into a comfortable conversation with Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a man of great authority and power and wealth. Jesus did not in any way soft-pedal the gospel to this man. He says, I tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born from above. Now, you remember we spoke about the words, the language of the gospel that has been corrupted in our modern day. I gave you several examples of that, but let me review them just quickly again for you. And there are many others that we're going to be dealing with. First was the word grace or charis. In the modern church, grace is used to cover over our sins so that when Jesus looks at us, he doesn't see us, he sees himself. That is a total misuse of the word charis or grace. Grace literally in the Greek means beauty, unmerited favor, but it means more than that. It means the divine influence of God that causes a man to turn from his sin and teaches him to say no to ungodliness. So charis is not a comforting blanket spread over us so that no one will see our sin from heaven. Just the opposite. Grace exposes our sin. It reveals the truth of who we are and causes us to be under deep conviction that we would repent of our sin and be made righteous. Another key word that is totally twisted in its meaning comes from the Greek dikio, meaning to be rendered righteous. It is used when referring to the Old Testament as declared righteous because the blood of animals, bulls and goats, lambs, were offered as sacrifice. And a man was declared righteous by doing these things and keeping the law. But the sins were still there. They were not forgiven. They were not removed by the blood of an animal. They were looking forward to the coming of Messiah when he would die as a priestly sacrifice on that altar of God called the cross. Now, at the cross, the word takes on a different meaning. Now it takes on the meaning of rendered righteous or taken through the process and made righteous, literally made righteous, not figuratively. You see, if we would say that Jesus' blood on the cross only causes us to be covered if our sins are are declared righteous, but they're still there. If we still walk in unrighteousness after we say we are saved, if we are sinning Christians, we are saying that the blood of Jesus has no more power than the blood of a bull or a goat or a lamb. It's a complete denigration of the precious blood of Jesus. No, the blood of Jesus does not cover our sin. The blood of Jesus removes our sin separates us from our sin, makes us righteous. And, of course, the old English word called justification or justify 
the old English word in its original use in the English language meant to make righteous, reflecting the truth and reality of the verb dikio. So, to be justified by faith has been twisted to mean that the blood of Jesus has no more power than that of a bull or a goat or a lamb, and my sins are simply covered, and I continue to walk in my sin, and nothing really is going to happen except in the heavenlies, but here I just accept Jesus, and then I'm free to go. That is an ugly twisting, and it is a, it is a walking over, a stomping on the precious blood of Jesus. No, the word to justify literally means, in fact, to be made righteous. It is a work of Jesus in, in cutting, in circumcising our hearts. Now, you recognize what circumcision was in the Old Testament. It was the removal of the foreskin on the penis of a man. That was what circumcision was. Now, why was circumcision used? Well, very easy. The word to be born in the scriptures is used in two ways. It is used first for a man to beget a child, and then after a period of time has passed, the woman gives birth to a child. We refer to that as being born. It is both the begetting and the giving birth that are called to be born in the Scriptures. So, in that day, the strength of a man was revealed in his giving the begetting of sons because they worked on the farm. They were the labor for the family. So, Literally, in the cutting off of the foreskin, the symbolic meaning of it is that man cannot produce anything on his own. His ability to produce is cut off from him. He is marked. He is unable to produce. And that it is God who produces. God is the one who comes and produces the children, the sons and daughters, gives the ability to gain wealth. So in the New Covenant, it is Jesus who comes and circumcises the heart. Man cannot produce righteousness out of a wicked heart. The heart has to be transformed, and the law has to be written on his heart. And so this righteousness that I speak of is by faith in Jesus, but it's real righteousness. It's not false righteousness. And so now the next word that I'd like to deal with is this word of being born. To be born. This word has been twisted to mean, and, and in fact it's even translated this, way in the NIV in, in verse 3. 
Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. But the Greek does not justify the translation born again. The literal meaning of the Greek words are to be born from above. But you see, we don't want to talk about being born from above. We want to talk about being born again, because in the modern church, when you are born again, you are born again after the likeness of Adam. You continue to walk in sin. You continue to walk in degradation. You you can't help it. I heard the Bible Answer Man one day say on his broadcast, it is utterly impossible for any man to ever walk free of his sin. And he laughed a caller off the air who tried to counter that argument by saying, but we are made righteous, and he just laughed at him and cut him off. This belief is so deeply seated in the wickedness of the modern church that for me to even come and say to you, John Wesley taught that we could walk without sin. Most today simply laugh and say, are you kidding me? I've tried as hard as I can, and I can't walk without sin. We all sin. We will always sin until Jesus comes or until we die. And when we die, we'll be freed from our sin. This is such a damnable heresy. It is ugly. It will take people to hell. No. That's not what the term born again means. The literal meaning is to be born from above, born from God, born of God, born without sin. Now, I want you to understand, and we'll get more into this, in the Scriptures, this born-again experience is referred to in several different ways. One of the ways is called crucifixion. To be born again or to be crucified means the same thing in the Scriptures. To be born again does not mean initial salvation. Now, let me share in depth some things with you that I think will begin to help clarify these issues. There are terms that are used in the Scripture that speak of complete restoration the restoration of the spirit of the human heart from the fallen image of Adam. And that's what I just shared with you from John, the third chapter, the third verse. But there are other places in Scripture that speak about the same thing. Romans, the eighth chapter, verse 29, talks about putting on the new man. Or Ephesians 4.24 speaks about putting off the body of the sin of the flesh. Or 2 Corinthians 2.11, putting off the old man. Or putting on 
the new man. Titus 3.5 talks about regeneration. Hebrews 10.29, sanctified. 1 Peter 1.3 and 23, born anew of the Spirit. These terms all refer to the spiritual restoration from the image of Adam, the sin nature, the original sin, to a new person in Christ Jesus. And you'll remember the passage in Corinthians that speaks about we are new creatures. Second, Second Corinthians 5.17 Okay, this birth from above is not of man who begot or woman who bore. Rather, it is a creative work of God that he does in our hearts. The birth from above is a restoration from the fall or a return to holiness and righteousness. Now, as Jesus is discussing this birth from above with Nicodemus, in, in John 3.3, 3, he says, Except anyone be born from above, he is not able to experience the kingdom of God. If you are still walking in your sin, it has to be for one of two reasons. One, you have not been born again. Or two, you were born again, but now you have gone back, as the Apostle Paul says in Galatians, and you have rebuilt what was destroyed, the old man of sin. It is the believer that is born from above, not a sinner. In other words, when you're born from above, you no longer will walk in rebellion against God. Now, some of you are saying, but pastor, this is impossible. No, it's not. The scriptures teach us that we must be born again. And we have in our age twisted the words to simply say, it means that I give assent that I will accept Jesus as my Lord and Savior. And that's supposed to mean I'm born again. It's a shallow deception. Remember, the gate is narrow, suffering, and groaning. Many try to enter it, and very few are able to. If you're still walking in sin, then you need that new birth. And regardless of what you've been told in the past, this is where you must start. Crying out to the God of heaven to remove from you that burden of sin. If the blood of Jesus cannot remove your burden of sin now, how will his blood be able to remove it from you at your death? We must have the burden of sin removed now. Here's the difficulty. Jesus taught us about this. 
I want to go to the book of Luke. I want to share with you a parable that Jesus gave In Luke, the eighth chapter, we find the parable of the sower. I have to keep coming back to these parables because as I grow in my understanding of the gospel, these parables become more and more precious to my heart as they outline for me a different and deeper understanding of the salvation process. You remember there was a sower that went out to sow. And some of the seed fell along the path, and it was trampled on. The birds of the air ate it up. Some fell on a rock, were a rocky ground. When it came up, the plants withered because there was no moisture. And some of the seeds fell among thorns. They grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil, and it that uh, seed came up, and it produced a crop a hundred times more than what was sown. And Jesus says, if you have ears to hear, hear. And the disciples were puzzled and didn't understand what this whole thing was about. And so Jesus sits down with them in private and begins to explain to them. Now, it's vital that we understand what he's talking about. He is talking about a man or a woman who has planted in their heart the message of the gospel. You have had the gospel planted in your heart by listening to this broadcast. So now the question is, what kind of soil has received this seed that's been planted? And what will you produce in your life? Will you produce sin and unrighteousness, or will you produce righteousness? Now, Jesus explains that the seed is the word of God. And he says in verse 12, this is Luke 8, 12. Those along the path are the ones who hear, and then the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart so that they may not believe and be saved. Well, how could the devil come and steal away the word of God from your heart? Very simply. When I was a child, I lived beside the Shenango River. And beside the Shenango River, there was a towpath. It led down through the woods beside the river to fishing spots. I used to love to ride my bike down that narrow trail because it was so hard-packed it was like concrete. You could put seed on that hard-packed soil and nothing would grow, no matter how much rain came or sunshine came, no seed would grow on that concrete-packed soil. In fact, my dad told about when they moved from Iowa to a new homestead ranch in Colorado, New Mexico border. I was eager for him as a child to tell me the whole story. He said they moved in wagons, and on one of the wagons was a large kitchen stove, a wood-burning stove. And they built the house, and in the middle of the house, it was L-shaped, two L's with a courtyard in between. And in the kitchen, right in the middle of the kitchen, they set the stove up, 
and then they built the house around it. And I said, Daddy, what kind of floor did you have? Where'd you get it? He said, Ray, we just had a dirt floor. I said, how could you have a dirt floor? It'd be dirty. He said, no, we packed it down. We put water on it and we packed it down. We packed it and packed it until finally it was like concrete. He said, my mother would sweep that floor every day. She kept her dirt floor clean. Well, Jesus is saying, some of you have hearts like this dirt floor. Your heart is so packed down that the seed of God that I'm preaching to you today falls on your heart and you say, this is impossible, this is crazy. And the devil will come and steal that word away from your heart. You'll be convinced you're right. You'll be convinced I'm wrong. That the word of God that I've shared with you is not correct. And you'll go on down your road and you won't produce anything for the kingdom of Jesus. You'll walk in the flesh. You'll walk not in the spirit of God, but in the spirit of darkness. And you'll have the illusion that you're saved because some preacher told you you were saved when you accepted Jesus. Your heart's hard, packed down. It's religious, full of rituals. You know what you know. You believe what you believe. Nobody can tell you anything different. This was mama's and daddy's church. It was grandma and grandpa's church, and it's going to be my church, and I'm going to die in this church. Yeah, you're going to die. The devil's come and stolen all the word of God away from your heart, and now you're left with religion and tradition and family heritage none of which can turn your heart to righteousness, none of which has hagios working. There's no, there's no turning from your sin. There's just cultural expectation. Oh, you may not sin with gross sins. You're not going to go out and use drugs, perhaps. You're not going to steal from somebody, perhaps. But, oh, there's pride and arrogance and bitterness and lying in your spirit. especially pride, self-satisfaction. You love to look in the mirror at your own righteousness. The devil steals the word away from your heart and you're left empty. Then he says, there are those on the rock. In other words, they hear the message with joy. They say, wow, that's great. And then they disappear and you never see him again. Recently had a family come to the National Prayer Chapel. They agreed with everything that was said. Yes, we all have to suffer. They disappeared. They never came back. Why? Unwilling to put the roots deep down into Jesus. They want a gospel that's much easier. They want a gospel that's intellectual. They want a gospel that is that is going to allow them to continue to enjoy their life of intellectual Christianity, intellectual religion. But no deep roots. No deep roots. They want to hold on to their darling sins. They're impatient with the Holy Spirit. They want to repent, accept salvation, and then go back to their way of life. 
They want their anger. They want their bitterness. They don't want to be transformed into the likeness of Jesus. Jesus said these are the people that the, that the word of God is going to fall on. They're going to hear this word. Some of you are today without any root in Jesus. You're shallow. You're religious, but you're shallow. And when persecution comes because of the word, you'll deny Jesus just like, just like Judas did. You'll turn and walk away from him. Now third, there are the choking Christians. These are the Christians who have thorns growing up in their lives. I want to share with you what the scriptures say about the thorns. There are three thorns that grow up in Christians' lives that prevent them from ever walking in the fullness of the joy of Jesus. Number one, the scriptures translate it worries of this life, but literally, it's the responsibilities of this life. We have to run the errands. We have to go here and there. We have to do the shopping. We have to see this person and that person. We're too busy. It's too far, Pastor, to drive to the National Prayer Chapel. I can't afford that kind of time. Of course not. You've got a thorn of responsibility that's grown up in your life. You're not going to pay the price to really go after Jesus. And two, the thorn is that of riches, the love of money. It captures your heart. You don't have time to be at a prayer meeting. You have to work. You don't have time to be at church every Sunday. You have a work schedule you have to fulfill. You want the money. After you have the money, then you'll have the luxury to have a little more time with your Bible, a little more time in prayer, a little more time going to church. Jesus is saying, you're not going to produce anything for the kingdom of God. And then third, the love of other things. Pleasures of this life. Things we love. Favorite television show is on. I can't go to prayer meeting. I can't go to prayer meeting. I, I have a social engagement. I have to go to this shower. I have to go do this. I have to go do that. Don't have time. Can I be real straight and honest with you? If you're going to enter that very narrow gate and you're going to begin to walk down the path toward Jesus and have your sins removed, it's going to take all the time and energy and money you have. There are no shortcuts to heaven. Remember the parable of the, of the farmer who's out plowing his field and he discovers a treasure box. He buries it again and he goes home and he sells all that he has. His wife must have thought he was utterly crazy. His kids must have been crying and saying, Daddy, don't sell my bed. He sold everything he had. And then on top of that, he probably sold the house. And his family is saying, what are we going to do? We're going to be homeless. He had to raise the money to buy that 
treasure, that field, so the treasure would belong to him. He sold all that he had and he, he bought the field and the treasure. Or you remember the parable of the pearl of great price. The man is looking for a pearl and when he finally finds it, he discovers it costs so much, he's going to have to sell everything he has to buy that pearl of great price. But it's worth it because he loves that pearl. And Jesus says, likewise, it's going to cost you everything you have. Your time, your energy, your money, your family. Everything is on the line for Jesus. He's saying that if these thorns grow up in your life, you will never produce anything for the kingdom of God. In other words, you will not have righteousness in your life. You will be left out. There will be no possibility of your entering the kingdom of God because these thorns have grown up and consumed everything you have. Now, I'm a farmer by background. I was raised on a farm. And I know that in the pasture, thistles are going to grow. Well, did you know there's only one way to get rid of a thistle? It's just about impossible to dig a thistle out. And it's hard to cut them out because they're, they're sharp. You have to burn them. You burn a thistle out and they don't come back. Many times I've seen Dad Yoder take his soldering gun with the propane and walk out on his pasture and stand there and burn out the thistles. Well, you're going to have to do the same thing with your life. You're going to have to burn out these thorns. You're going to have to turn and give everything into the hand of Jesus. That's what happens when you enter into this narrow gate. Now, you still have the sin burden on your back. According to Bunyan, you're still, you're still walking with a burden. And, of course, you're not born again yet. You're walking with a burden. But you're making a choice to head toward the light. And you're making a choice to say, Jesus, I am choosing today to enter into the kingdom of heaven by the narrow gate that you've directed me to. And I now desire with all of my heart to be crucified with you. Remember what Jesus said. He said, you must deny yourself. Now, I just shared the parable where he describes how you deny yourself. You turn aside from your responsibilities. They're no longer first for you. Jesus is first. You turn aside from the, the love of money. And you turn aside from the pleasures of life and you seek after Jesus. This is what Jesus is saying. Deny yourself the responsibilities. Deny yourself the love of money. And deny yourself the pleasures of this life. Take up your cross and follow me. Now, why would we follow Jesus? Because he's headed to Golgotha. He's headed there with his cross to be crucified. And we must follow him to Golgotha, and we must be crucified with Christ. That's what Paul says in Galatians. I am crucified with Christ. 
Nevertheless, I live, but not I. It's Christ dwelling in me. This is the marvelous transformation of my life based on what God will do as he gives me birth from above, as he gives me birth out of his heart. To be born again does not mean to be born again in sin. It means to be born again into righteousness, into real righteousness, where I no longer walk in sin and degradation before God. Now, is it possible that I'll still sin? Yes, it is still possible. And I have. And that's why 1 John is so precious to me, because... It says we have one who speaks with the Father on our behalf, but it is not the normal occurrence day to day. It would only be a very exceptional situation. Now, I see we're almost out of time today. I'm getting the five-minute high sign. And I'm sorry I didn't open the phones for you to to call and, and pray and talk with me today. But I felt we had to lay this foundation. Now, I want to finish this parable with with the fourth kind of soil. Let me read it for you. This is Luke, the eighth chapter, verse 15. Oh, by the way, I need to go back to 14 just very quickly. The end of that last statement was, and they do not mature. In other words, if these thistles or thorns are growing in your life, you'll never grow up into Jesus. You'll always be a baby in Jesus. And then when it comes time, you will be unable to enter into his kingdom. Verse 15, But the seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart, This is a person who has been born from above. He is given a noble and good heart. Remember, the heart is deceitful above all things. You cannot repair your heart. You have to get a new heart. You have to be born from above. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, the seed lands on good soil. This is a person with a noble and good heart. His old heart has been replaced. He has been born again. They hear the word. They retain it. And by perseverance, produce a crop. By perseverance. Many that I talk with are unwilling to persevere. Unwilling to persevere. Have you been born from above? If not, I urge you, get on your face before Jesus and begin to cry out to him and ask that he would increase the conviction of your heart, he would reveal your sin, and he would cause you to flee toward the light and begin to cry aloud, asking, Can I be born again, Jesus? Will you do it? It is a work of God. It is a creative work of God to bring you forth in the newness of life. And he will do it. You can trust him. He shed his blood to do it. Now, before I pray with you, just very quickly. We're coming to the end of the month. 
I need to hear from you if this broadcast is to continue. Thank you for many of you who have written. Please send what the Holy Spirit prompts you to, to the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. Lord, I lift up my brother and my sister today, and I ask, Lord, that you would cause them to see the reality of their condition before you, that, Jesus, they could be born again, born from above as the divine act of your Holy Spirit by the blood of Jesus. Lord, I pray for each person that they would not be discouraged, that they would not turn aside and jump into the slough of despond, that they would rush to the gate and be granted entrance before Satan takes them out. Lord, would you put an urgency in our hearts to have sin removed and to be made righteous. What precious news it is, Jesus, that if we will allow you to remove the thorns of our life, we can be made into new creatures. Thank you, Jesus. I pray in your mighty name and by your precious blood, Jesus. Amen. I'm Pastor Ray Greenley from the National Prayer Chapel. Thank you for joining me today for Pilgrim's Progress. I'll talk to you soon. God bless you. <laughs> 